0: No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find a Savior. Find Yeshua Hamashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio tonight. Uh, I I have something special kind of prepared for you, and what I hope to do is um, is do just a little bit of give you a taste of some of the experience that I've had in my study of the Torah. And I have entitled what I'm going to share with you tonight, I call Mysteries of the Torah. And the word mysteries uh, for us Torah teachers is really a word that is synonymous with what we call treasures. And uh, treasures are really special things. Most of you have heard of this term in the scripture and you've heard them use it. It's not a common term that we use in our language today, but occasionally you'll hear the scripture where it will say the word, behold, behold something. And those are usually to us Hebrews, those are a setup, a uh, very special that we're getting ready to get a treasure. We're getting ready to get something really special uh, that will be done for us. The, the word picture that we would understand for the word behold is kind of like this. Let's say that we had someone in our midst that was, say, was their birthday, or, or we wanted to give them a special gift. You know, a group of us would kind of conspire uh, to get the gift for that person. We would send someone out. They would pick out this very special gift. It doesn't have to be real expensive. It's just it's something that we're going to get special for this person. And we would use a mystery to kind of shroud it. In other words, we wouldn't tell the person that we're going to do that. We would have a little bit of a mystery to them. Uh, But but we would do this. We would we'd kind of set them up a little bit to get them to anticipate. And we play this game all the time with our children at birthdays and special events. They have a sense that something's coming, but they don't know what it is when we get to get them a gift. And we put a mystery to it. There's a little treasure that we wrap up and provide to them. And you know how we do that. Sometimes husbands will do it with their wives. They'll come in. They'll say, OK, first of all, you've got to close your eyes. And so we tell them to close their eyes. And they say, stick out your hands. And we set them up with close your eyes, hold out your hands. You know you're going to get something. It's going to be good. And at the moment that we put the gift in their hands, we say, OK, open your eyes. Well, that's what the word behold means. Behold. And whenever you see the word behold in scripture, you ought to really stop and set back and note what what is happening from a Hebrew standpoint is just like that special mystery, that special treasure uh, that comes forth. There are places in the scriptures, particularly, I want to show you some examples in the Torah, that which Moses gave to us, there are some of these mysteries and treasures that he's given to us. Those of us who are Torah teachers, we know that the Torah is taught on four levels. The first level we call the Peshat level, which is the plain sense of the text. We just show you the factual presentation of the material. The second level we call Drash. And this is where Brother Ralph uh, is, is his skill as a teacher in that he does Midrash, in other words, study. And what we do when we do that is that we bring out the homiletic or the truth, or the wisdom, the principle that is being expressed in the scripture. And so that's where most sermonizing uh, would come from. We we extrapolate uh, the principle of truth from scripture for you. But there is a third level, and uh, that is called the remez level. And that's the level we call the hint level. Uh, and there's a little bit, we get into a little bit, Uh, more interest in it. In other words, we're looking a little bit deeper to another level. And in the case of the Torah, the remez level, the Hint level, is always about one particular subject. It's about the Messiah. At the Hint level, everything is about the Messiah. And then there's a final level, which we call the Sod level. And that is a deep, mysterious level, in which that numbers begin to signify things. The individual meaning of letters mean things. How many of you are aware that in Psalms 119, before each little section of the psalm is a Hebrew letter given there? The first little section is Aleph, then the second little section is Bet. That is part of the psalm. That's part of the inspired part. And for Hebrew teachers, those who study um, the Torah every letter of the Hebrew alphabet actually has a teaching. And sometimes the combination of the letters put together is like a teaching about that word. And you get down into the sowed level, you begin to see these things interlace along with the choice of the numbers that are being used. Let me give you a good example of how a Torah teacher at that level would would get a certain sense or theme or meaning. Like, for example, I'm a Torah teacher, Hebrew, I'm looking for signs all the time in my life. Tonight we had nine different chilies being entered. Nine chilies being entered. And, of course, all of us Torah teachers, we know that the number nine means judgment. And so those chilies will be judgment from God on someone. Now, that's I'm, I'm being facetious. However, I thought of that as an example. I was chuckling to myself because I knew I was going to be teaching about tonight. Uh, we, as a Torah teacher, we look at every one of those things. And when we see a number in Scripture, we pay particular attention to it because those numbers carry teachings and meanings and things to us. And part of it has to do with we believe as Torah teachers, we believe that those words right down to every letter and every stroke of the letter is full of meaning. If you'll remember, the Messiah made mention of, think not that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I tell you, not one jot or tittle, not one stroke or the smallest letter shall pass away until all is passed away. And what he's referring to, that there are meanings into every letter in the Torah that is part of the teaching, part of the understanding that comes with it. Tonight, I would like to illustrate for you, to kind of excite your soul, to enlighten you a little bit, of a couple of just five examples that come from the Torah. And I want to tell you right up front why I want to do this. At the end of this holiday, beginning next Shabbat, is the beginning of the next Torah cycle. It's Bereshit, Genesis 1-1. And I would like to encourage you in your fellowships, get into the systematic study of Torah on a weekly basis. Let it become part of your walk throughout the year because if you're in the Torah, it cycles you right through every holiday. It prepares you spiritually for every holiday and it gives you the base teaching for basic discipleship. I would remind you That Yeshua, when he came and was discipling those men, we believe that he took them through a complete Torah cycle. And that was their preparation for them to go into ministry. For us to walk, have stability, spiritual stability, I'd really encourage people to get into this systematic study. One of the things that you'll discover is what Paul talks about, that the word of God is alive and powerful. Now. When he wrote those words, there was no New Testament. What scriptures was he referring to that are alive and powerful, full of life? He was referring to the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvah, the other writings. He was talking about the Old Testament. Leading right in there is the Torah. And in my own personal experience, this year at Bereshit, I begin my 16th year of systematically studying and teaching the Torah. And I have discovered every year it gets better. In fact, it is my testimony to you that every year when I go through, the volume of what I learn about the Lord and about the Torah in this cycle, what I learn in each portion is more than all of the previous years before. And I have this wonderful growing Constant experience of being challenged by the Lord to get into the scripture and they become alive and powerful to me. And literally, and those that are on staff, uh, we we have a chuckle uh, frequently throughout the weeks. We literally watch the principles and the things being taught in that portion literally happening right before our eyes in the lives of people and in the world and things that are happening. And suddenly it's alive and powerful and it's pressing on. Let me let me go one step further with you to encourage you in a pursuit to commit yourself to the study of Torah. I believe, and I don't have a lot of, shall we say, absolutely confirming evidence. Let me just offer it to you as my testimony. I believe, and I will not be shocked, when we get to the kingdom and we happen to discover that God was so smart so intelligent that it turned out that the Torah was the Lamb's Book of Life and your name is written in it from the foundation of the world. And there are a lot of things I could show you in the Sod level where names can be found embedded mysteriously written into it that is clearly recognized by Hebrew scholars. My own name is laced through the Torah Twelve times. And it's laced and intersects five times through one particular teaching. It's the one about give us meat to eat. That's where my name laces five times through that passage of scripture. And I believe there's a destiny involved in my life to go and try to provide meat to the brethren for spiritual food. Tonight, I would like to give you a sample of some elements that I call not at the milk level, but at the meat level that I found in the Torah that were challenging to me and really encouraged me in the scripture. A sense of it's alive and powerful. It is about me, about my life, my thoughts. And therefore, I agree with Moses' words. There is no Idle word in here. It is your very life. So the five things that I'd like to briefly mention to you, some of you who followed my teaching, you may have heard elements of this, but I'd like to put them together kind of as a package for all of you tonight. There are five, and we'll kick the slide up for us. The first is what I call the Alephantav. The second is called the Inverted Noons. The third is the Shema Ain and the Echad Dalet. Moses and the Rock, the Ammon. And finally, the title that was on the cross. Now, let me just jump right in and go to the first example. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. And I have a little pointer here to assist me in the screens that we have. Everyone knows these words. I'm certain most of you could almost quote it. Uh, from memory, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, we would read Bereshit, Berah, Elohim, Et, hashamayim ve-et haaretz. There are seven Hebrew words. Only six of them have been translated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Only six Hebrew words got translated. There's a Hebrew word in there that's not translated in English. So when you read in the English, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, there's another word in there you don't know about. Now I'm not trying to make a case for that you all need to come back and study Hebrew with me and become Hebrew scholars. Because really this is a sign. Even to the Hebrews, they have questions about this. Because it turns out that the fourth word up here is that little word right there, eh. And it's not supposed to get translated. In fact, in Hebrew grammar, That's a special word that is put in there in the text because the actual translation is in the beginning created God. And what that word says is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The action created is not that. It's what follows. So in the beginning, it's not God who was created. In the beginning, it's God who created what? The heavens and the earth. And it's actually used uh, in, instead like something that would tell a Hebrew reader that the verb is on the predicate object, that which is follows, not on the subject. The subject is God. And this happens frequently in Hebrew text. However, while it may be a great grammar thing to the Hebrews, there is no idle word. And we who teach the Torah know there's still got to be another meaning. There's another level to understand why is that there. The Hebrew word et is made up of two Hebrew letters, the first one and the last one, Aleph and Tav. Now, if you will, if you remember, go over to Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, we have the, the Messiah meeting John, the Apostle John. He hears the voice and he turns and there standing before him is this Hebrew Messiah. Yeshua the Messiah. And he speaks to John and he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And this Hebrew Messiah talking to this Hebrew prophet proceeds to speak Greek. Wrong. He's not speaking Greek. He's speaking Hebrew. Therefore, he didn't say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. He said, I'm the Aleph and Tav. Now, that just happened to answer a rather major question that exists in the Hebrew Scriptures that begins at Genesis 1-1 and goes several very interesting places throughout the Old Testament. And it has been the question of the Hebrew sages. Who or what is the Aleph Tav that we find in these interesting passages? There's a mystery, a question about it. For example, some of the places that we find it are like in the description of the menorah. The spirit of the Lord is in the center. And then we have these different spirits of the branches that come up in the menorah. And in the description of the creation of the menorah, right in the middle is the Aleph Tav. And the sages ask, what is it that the Aleph Tav has to do with the menorah? Another place where it has, and this is the one that I want you to take note of, comes to us from the prophet Zechariah. And you've heard these words. They will look upon him whom they pierced. That's a messianic prophecy. They will look upon him whom they pierced. There's no Hebrew word there for him or whom. It's Aleph Tav. A more literal translation would be, they'll look upon Aleph Tav they pierced. So, here's the Messiah saying he's the Aleph Tav, He's making reference to what the prophet Zechariah said, that he's the olive Tav. He's this word that is sitting in Genesis one one in the beginning. Most Bible teachers will tell you that the first time we hear about the Messiah is the promise of the Messiah that was given to Eve. That the, the Messiah will be the one who will crush the serpent. And that's the first place that we think that most of us have been taught, that's the first evidence of the Messiah coming to us there in the book of Genesis. I submit to you that the first evidence of the Messiah is in Genesis 1.1. It's the fourth word in the scripture. By the way, the number four is always about the Messiah. Four, forty, four thousand is always about the Messiah. When a woman becomes pregnant and is getting ready to have a child, she bears the child for forty weeks. Forty weeks. I mean, if you go down to the doctor, that's what they'll calculate. They'll count 40 weeks. They won't count months. They want to keep track of the weeks. The number 40 is always about the Messiah. Seven is the plan of God. You see, every woman who bears a child is telling the story about the promised son who's going to be coming. And there was finally one woman who did it, who brought forth the son, the promised son of God. Turn, if you would, with me to John chapter one, the gospel. Of the Apostle who wrote the book of Revelation for us. In John chapter 1. The Apostle John begins his gospel. With a rather interesting introduction. And I'm certain that you're familiar with this passage. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Every Hebrew when you hear the words in the beginning. We go right to Genesis 1.1. And as a Hebrew Reader, I'm hearing a Hebrew apostle here speak, and he says, in the beginning, oh I know that, that's Genesis 1-1. Instantly, I know exactly where that, see I've been Torah trained, and I know those are the first words of the beginning of the teaching of Torah. In the beginning was the Word. I know exactly what you're talking about, you're talking about that Word right there, is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's sitting right there by Elohim, right there, there's Elohim, God. It's with God, and the Word was God. The word was God. And he goes on to say, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There's God, and there's the heavens and the earth. And you can't get that without that word right there. Nothing came into, including the heavens and the earth, without that there. Without that word. So the Aleph and Tav, is one of the first clues to us about the Messiah. Now, it's not Alpha and Omega. That's the Greek representation that you're supposed to understand. It's Aleph-Tav. And if you don't go back to Aleph-Tav, you're going to miss something rather incredible that the teaching gives to us. You know what the individual meaning of those letters are? If we could put the Aleph and the Tav back up. That letter Aleph, the first letter... This is the modern shape, the block shape of the letter. The ancient shape of the Hebrew letters were like a form of hieroglyphic. It was supposed to be a little picture. And you can go back to a Bible dictionary. I'm not making this up. This is well known, well known by the scholars of these languages. And Languages are living. Anyone who's a writer knows that language changes on us as time goes on. A good example of that. A generation ago, we used to we use the word gay, and it meant fun and joyous, and today that word means something different. The language has changed on us because of the times and the way people use the language. And so this letter, in its construction as a normal course of events, has taken on a slightly modified shape. But the original shape was just a simple little slashing triangle In other words, where they brought this down here and this stroke here, and there was a little cross that went across, and it looked like a little cocked triangle. And what they were trying to draw was the head of an ox. This is the modern version of it, the head of an ox. And the letter that we drew there, Aleph, was trying to designate a concept, a thought of strength. And an ox to the ancients was like the most powerful, strongest force that you could employ, man could use to do work. You could plow with an ox. You could pull carts and wagons and and uproot trees and carry great loads with an ox. It was a symbol of strength. So the letter Aleph means strength. And the teaching of the letter Aleph is that. This letter, Tav, the last letter of the alphabet... Used to be made in the ancients as a very simple little slashing cross. It was just, it was called the cross. Little slashing cross. So Aleph Tav means, in the ancients, the strength of the cross. Boy, does that mean something to us. Isn't that interesting? From Genesis 1-1, the word that was in the beginning The word that was with God and the word was God means the strength of the cross. You could preach that any Sunday anywhere in this country. And if you don't go back to these letters and get back to it, you're going to miss an incredible, important clue that laces through the prophets all the way to the book of Revelation about the Messiah. And the point that I want to make to you that the Torah brings out to us is that it illustrates the, the, how pervasive, how the Messiah is the center of our faith. I find it absolutely mind-boggling personally to me when I have discussions with my New Covenant brethren, some of my fellow pastors and so forth, and they absolutely diminish the value of, they, they want nothing to do with any sort of having any weight with the Torah they just want to stick up there in the New Testament with the letters of Paul and so forth, and the reason they want to do it is because they want to emphasize Jesus uh, Christ. They want to emphasize Yeshua the Messiah. And if you really want to emphasize Yeshua the Messiah, the book you want to start with is Genesis. And the reason they don't is because they don't know him. They really don't know the teaching. They don't know the scriptures. They don't have the base teaching that all of the disciples had who began the new covenant. And when the Messiah said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and when they all talked about the love of the word of God, they weren't referring to the New Testament. They were referring to other scriptures. You remember where it said of the new disciples in the new covenant, they were studying the scriptures daily, daily to confirm their faith in the Messiah. There wasn't a New Testament. In fact, the first books of the New Testament... We believe the first actual book of the New Testament was 1 Thessalonians. It was written in 60 A.D. That's at least 30 years after the resurrection. For 30 years, what did these disciples, what did these new believers study to show themselves approved to God and to the Messiah? And when the reason that we have a lot of difficulty relating to them is because we don't have this teaching in our new covenant faith. We don't have the same teaching that the disciples that walked around with Yeshua had. If we could get it, I guarantee you it would revolutionize our faith. It would make all kinds of sense to us about what the New Testament is really saying. Now, the uh, let's go on to our next point. An area that we call the inverted noons. If you would, turn with me to Numbers chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. Written in the Hebrew scrolls, written by Moses, is in the and the actual scroll are these two verses. And um, Moses did something rather interesting in encasing two verses. And in Numbers chapter 10, beginning at verse 35, is where one of these shows up, and the other one shows up. The inverted noon shows up after those two verses. To Hebrew scholars and to those who teach the Torah, I want you to listen. To what I'm about to tell you. The Hebrew sages say that the wisdom and the knowledge, the mystery, the treasure that is found in these two verses is equivalent to any other book of the Torah. Let me say that to you again. Numbers chapter uh, 10, verse 35 and 36. The wisdom, the knowledge, what you can gain spiritually from it. In that, in those verses is equivalent to the authority and the power of any other book of Torah. That's like, they compare to the book of Genesis. Or they compare to the book of Exodus. Or they compare to the book of Deuteronomy. These two verses. And Moses designated these two verses by taking the letter noon and reversing the shape of it. The letter noon, if we show the, these two, those two letters right there, that's backwards. For the way the letter noon is written. It actually is formed the other way. But Moses made it into today in language we call a bracket. See, it looks like a bracket. Only he put them both in the same, he didn't encase, he just used these bracket kind of things there. And he bracketed these two verses in the Torah scroll. If you get an actual Torah scroll, roll it out, and you get into Numbers 10, you know exactly where you're at. In the book of Numbers, the book of Bemidbar, because you'll see those letters designated on their own lines. And those two verses are completely separate. So these two verses have got some very powerful message in it. Right. So let's read what these two verses are that are so powerful that are equivalent to the weight of any other book in Torah. Verse thirty five. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord. And let thy enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from before you. And when it came to rest, he said, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriad of the thousands of Israel. How many of you were here for the Shabbat morning service? Do you remember the liturgy that we had in it? Most of you who have not been around the liturgical worship of a Torah service It just sounds like we do a lot of repetitious Hebrew sounding prayers. They are actually verses from scripture, from Torah. And we have learned that these particular verses are very powerful, very important, and they form and constitute the part of our worship. We use these two verses to open and to close the entire Torah. When you're in a Torah service, if you heard me, you remember the cantoral that I was specifically doing? You remember when I, 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 I sang in the Hebrew? It was these two verses. I was singing. We, we put it into a liturgical cantoral because we're trying to make it so special. We put it to music so that we can make it as pleasant as we possibly can to the Lord's ears. That we want to heighten this moment of worship. And it's about the Messiah, it's the highest form of liturgical worship of the Messiah. It comes right from the Torah, because this is about the two great works of the Messiah. Listen to the first verse. Rise up, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from before you. It's the, it's the resurrection of the Messiah. Do you remember the teaching in the New Testament? When the Messiah actually rose up, that is one of the central foundational points of our New Covenant faith. Our Messiah rose from the dead. He proved he has eternal life. And the scripture teaches us in the New Covenant that as a result of his resurrection, he has gained victory over all of his enemies. Death. No longer controls him. He has been victorious over death. All of his enemies will be fleeing from him. In the same way that light comes into a room and forces the darkness to leave. When he rose from the grave, he brought about a power of life that was more powerful than death could be. Literally, his life is so powerful, he's driving death away when he rose up. And that is what that verse is about. Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, just like the darkness flees from the light. The first great work of the Messiah is his own resurrection proving his victory over death. And when we open the ark in an observant synagogue, and when we bring out the Torah to teach, the first thing that we say, we recognize the authority of the Messiah in his resurrection. Now, most, I got to admit, my own uh Hebrew brethren don't quite understand that yet. You see, there's this blindness that has come in. And although they're saying the words, they don't see him. They're literally worshiping him and welcoming the Messiah, but they don't see him. But this blindness is temporal. There is a day coming when they will see and they will be observing and doing their normal thing, but suddenly they'll have eyes to see what they've been saying all along. Now we who are messianic, and for those of you who come to the assembly, I am saying to you, you too need to be instructed. You know the Messiah, you know about his resurrection, but you need to see what Moses has been saying from the very beginning about the Messiah, so that you'll understand that the Messiah is not in conflict with Moses truly. Truly, had you believed the words of Moses, you would have believed in the Messiah. I mean, this is the basis for that statement. If you really had understood what Moses was saying and doing, you would then have understood what the Messiah was doing. The second one, which we use to close the ark, when we give the Torah teaching, we roll the scroll up again and we bind it, we cover it, and we take it back to the ark, and when we put it back in the ark, The words that we say is, and when it came to rest, he said, return thou, O Lord, to myriad thousands of Israel. It's another resurrection. But this time, it's the resurrection of us. It's when the Messiah comes again. And when he comes again, there's going to be another resurrection. Not the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah's bride, us. When he will be returning... To the myriads of Israel and the word myriads whenever you see that the myriad thousands it's it's the Hebrew way of trying to give to the value more than millions now this is very interesting that Moses wrote this because at the time that he wrote this there was a little over 600,000 men of Israel that were numbered there wasn't even a million men we estimate that at most maybe three three and a half million people may have been involved in the exodus. So when Moses wrote this, yes, Israel was about three and a half million people, but the way he's writing this, he's writing about a much greater number of Israel, a huge number of Israel. And when the Messiah comes back to gather up all the saints, all those that belong to him, how many will there be of Israel that belongs to him? Myriads of thousands will be resurrected. More than millions of them. And here the word is actually prophetically speaking into the future of that great number that will be raised. These two verses are encased in these letter, the letter noon. Now here's the interesting part about that Hebrew letter noon right there. The normal letter noon has a meaning. It's the... It's the vision of that letter is as though you were to walk up to some water. And it was shallow, and you can see down in there and you can see the rocks and the bank. And there just, for a moment, you see a fish. Only you know what happens, you know, when you walk up and there's clear water and you can see the fish, the fish can see you. And as you walk up, well that fish, you know, is just that quick, he's gone. And that movement is the stroke of the letter. The way they they make a stroke, it's like the stroke of the movement of the letter. And the actual letter means the quickening of life. The reason why Moses reversed the letter is because he's trying to give us a sign. It's the quickening of life from death. It's resurrection. And there's two of them. And there's about two resurrections here. One for the Messiah and one for us. So the inverted noon is the sign of the resurrection right there in the Torah. You remember the time when the Sadducees came up and they didn't believe in the resurrection? They were talking to the Messiah. And he just flat said to them, ye do err. You know not the scriptures nor the power of God. Now we know about the power of God. We know the power of God. We know God's great and powerful creator and so forth. But what was the error in the scripture they didn't know? They didn't understand the inverted noons. They didn't know the scripture. And this is real clear from Moses on this one. I mean, he's set it off with like these huge brackets we call the inverted noons just to get our attention to this lesson about these verses. And as I said, Torah teachers know, the sages said, These two verses carry that much weight and power because they're about the most powerful subject there is. The resurrection from the dead. Let me move to the next one for you. The Shema. In the Hebrew text, the word Shema in the Torah is, if you were to look in the Torah scroll, you would see the word Shema there. But the last letter, Ain, which is this letter right here, is made larger than all the other letters on the line. So you look at there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and you see, Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first thing that you see on the line in the Torah scroll is you see the word Shema, and you see this large Ein made larger than any of the other letters. Now there's different reasons and teachings for it. One of them is that the word Shema could be written Instead of an ain at the end, it could be written with an aleph at the end. You'd still be, you know, that's an ah sound, like this is an ah sound, phonetically. And so it could possibly be written that way, and it would still be pronounced shema. However, to make sure some scribes have said, to make sure that we never do that, uh, because the word shema that ends in an aleph doesn't mean here, O Israel. It means perhaps. So we don't want to ever make the mistake of saying, perhaps, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We don't ever want to make that mistake. So some have said, well, the scribes and Moses wrote it initially by putting the aim and enlarged it so that no scribe would ever make that mistake. But there's another word that is in that text that also has an enlarged letter. It's the word Echad right at the end of it for the word one. Here, Shema, the enlarged ain. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, echad, and the last letter of echad is the D sound, the dalit letter, and so it looks a letter like that, and they enlarge that letter in the word echad just like they did the ain in the word Shema. So when you're looking at the Torah scroll, you see this line, and you see this letter ain, and this letter Dalit, jump off the page. And the letter, if we'll move to the next slide there, it forms that word. And that word means witness. Witness. You see, a person who says the Shema, who stands up before God, speaks out loud so it can be heard. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is a witness of the living God. By those words. And we call it the watchword of our faith. If I hear a person who says those words, I know that person is a witness of the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a witness of it. You remember what Yeshua said to them as he was getting ready to ascend. Go back to Jerusalem. I'm very shortly going to make you Witnesses. And it had to do with when the Shema came. When did we get the Shema? At Mount Sinai. On the holiday we call Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. When was the Holy Spirit given and when did they become witnesses? Same day. That the Holy Spirit was given on the same day that Israel received the Shema. Now to the observant Hebrew. An observant Hebrew gets up each morning and says the Shema and each night before he goes to bed, he says the Shema. He literally encases his life that day within those words. There are many, many testimonies that when the Jewish people were being gassed in the gas chambers in the concentration camps, the last words that were on their lips was the Shema. That was their final words to it. And to a Hebrew, these are the words you begin your day and these are the words you end your day with. It's very, very significant and important, brethren, for you to learn about the Shema. Because Yeshua has called you to be a witness of him. And the accepted form of the witness is to speak these words. Now, interestingly enough, let's look at the letters for this word. That letter right there, ain, means the eye, an eye. And this one over here means door, the eye at the door. It's where we get the term eyewitness from. There was a person standing at the door and they looked out and they saw what happened. And in our own news media where they always want to make the the point of that we didn't just report the news, It was eyewitness news. Therefore, we know it's the best news. It was they saw it. And what the scripture is saying is, I want you to be an eyewitness of God. I want you to be the best witness that you can possibly be. And part of our training, part of our faith that teaches us is we say the Shema to prove ourselves to be the best witnesses of who God is. And it's just in. The structure of those letters. There's a whole teaching and meaning in the Hebrew that comes to it. This little mystery, this little treasure that's found for us in the Torah. Let me move you on to the next one. Moses, I call this Moses and the rock. You all know the the basic story. It comes to us in Numbers chapter 20. Turn with me there to do it. In Numbers chapter 20, the people are traveling In the wilderness, and we talked about this the other night, and in the course of the wilderness, they started running out of water. And that happened to them a couple of times. This is one time that happened to them a little bit later on in their journey uh, as they were traveling. This isn't part of the ten tests that I talked about. This is later, um, after they were out in the wilderness, they'd been judged, they were out there for the 40 years, and they're traveling around, and they run into a problem with water. Beginning in Numbers chapter 20 and at verse 8, here's what the Lord told Moses that he should do. He said, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. I want you to take note of something. Remember last night when I was sharing with you that he took the staff and he struck the rock and that's how they got the water the first time. Only this time he says, take the rod, speak to the rock, speak to the rock. Let's follow on what it says and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And the water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given to them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because of the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. I want you to stop and take note of something. If there is a man out of the story of the Exodus who deserved to go to the promised land, surely it was Moses. I mean, Moses had been prepped for the Exodus. He'd been trained. He's the one with the burning bush experience. He's the one that went back. He's the one that had to deal with Pharaoh, with Aaron, his brother. He's the one that led the children of Israel out, went across the Red Sea. He's the one that went up on the mountain. He's the one that received the Torah. He's the one that got the pattern of the tabernacle. He's the one that taught them while they and led them while they were in the wilderness and you're telling me that because he got a little confused because the first time he went to the rock he struck the rock you're telling me because he was told just to speak to the rock and he struck it that that was so uh it was such a violation of what god had said that god said moses you don't get to go to the promised land now what is so wrong with striking the rock when he was told to speak to it I mean, look, Moses made a lot of mistakes, but what makes this mistake so devastating? Why? Why? You know that the sages of Israel go through, and this is a torturous thing for them. We, you know, we, we, he, we uh, Torah teachers, we go, you know, this is a classic case of like somebody dressing up for the ball. I mean, you've got the dress, you've got the hairdresser, you got the limo, you got the date. Everything is there and you don't get to go to the ball. I mean, if there's a guy that ought to be going to the promised land, it ought to be Moses. And the Lord cuts him right off and says, no, you don't get to go. Brethren, it's because of the seriousness of what he did here. Now, I can make a lot of rationalizations for why Moses did what he did. For example... Historically, that didn't isn't that the way we did it before? I mean, you know, when we got the water the first time, he got the rod and he went over and he struck the rock. I mean, that's how we got water the first time, right? So, you know, he's thinking, well, that's the way we got it last time, we'll do it the same way. And maybe he just kind of forgot, you know, that Moses or that the Lord said speak to the rock. And plus, these people, the children of Israel, were threatening Moses. They were threatening him with his life. I mean, they were threatening to stone him if they didn't get no the water. they got really upset with it. So, you know, I, and you, know, you you hear the tone of his voice. He's a little frustrated with him. wouldn't you say he walks up to him, he says, you rebels, what do I have to do? You know, make water come out of the rock for you. I mean, he knew it was going to come out. I mean, the Lord had said, I'll give you water. It'll come out of the rock. So he he's kind of exploiting that situation a little bit. What do I have to do? Have to make water come out of the rock for you. I mean, you can't understand that Moses is somewhat justified in the way he's been treated by his brethren. So he kind of exploits the situation a little bit. I mean, you can understand that behavior. I mean, I wouldn't recommend you do it, but I, at least we can understand it a little bit. So what is so bad about that, that the Lord says, you just lost your ticket to the promised land? It has to do with the complaint that God said to him there in uh, verse 12. Then the, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me. Believed me? What do you mean? What do you mean I didn't believe you? I mean, you told me to speak to the rock. I failed to do it. I struck it with the rock. I went to the rock, didn't I? Do what you said. I mean, I mean that's a demonstration. I'm I'm doing what you said. Isn't that believing? What, what do you mean? I didn't believe in you. And this is very perplexing to the sages. The only way, really, to understand this word is to find out about the word believe there. And that's a very common theological word. We use it all the time. Every time we talk about God, we talk about believing in God. What is it that Moses did that means he didn't believe in him? Because it looks like he made a relatively simple mistake. And by the way, we make relatively simple mistakes all the time. How would you like to have the severe punishment? You don't get to go to the promised land because you didn't believe in him. And by the way, part of the lesson here is Moses is proving keeping Torah won't get you to the promised land. Because if there's a guy who kept Torah, you could say Moses did it. I mean, he taught it. He's the he's the original writer. He's the provider. He's the giver of Torah. I don't know of any man who's done Torah better than Moses. There's no man who's ever done Torah better than Moses, and it wasn't good enough. He didn't make it to the promised land. So if you keep Torah perfectly up to the level of Moses, there's no guarantee you'll make it to the promised land. There's another component called believe that Moses didn't do. The word believe, the only way to understand this is to look at the meaning, the Hebrew word believe here. And it's this word right here, amon. That's an olive, a mim, and a nun sofit. This word this letter we already know about, the strength of. This letter we also know about here is that noon, that's that letter noon, but this is a noon sofit. In other words, Li- uh, uh, lively or living or, or coming to life, that word noon. So what's this middle letter, mem mean? Well, uh, it's the letter that we use in the name of Moses. Moses is uh, made with the mem letter, and part of it has to do with the meaning of Moses' name, and it has to do with waters. And actually it means the chaos of water. It's like bubbling waters. You know, when you look at water that are moving, way it's that kind of waters and actually what this word means the strength of the living waters now guess what they were doing they were walking up to the rock to get water not just any water the living waters because out there in the wilderness water is life you don't have water you die i mean you want to talk about a wonderful word picture you know of there of it and Who is the living waters to us? The Messiah. If you do not believe in the Messiah, if you do not believe in the strength of the living waters, you don't make it to the promised land. That'll preach any Sunday. That's the reason why Moses didn't make it to the promised land then. He had a very important component missing. Now, do I think Moses will be there in the kingdom? Yes, I do. But he's illustrating and teaching us something. By his life and his experience, God has used him to show us something. Moses is not the answer. The Messiah is the answer. Moses is just a teacher to lead us and to come to the Messiah. And even by his mistakes... He can teach to us. Did you know that the Lord can use your life even when you foul it up to be a good example of the Lord? You know, you don't have to be perfect. I drew a cartoon uh, some time ago that was just a real chuckle I had in the Lord. There was this this little caption I showed of this man. He was praying intently. And he said, oh God, I, I really want you to use me. I want, I want you to use my life. And the angel appears to him and says, God has heard your prayer. And yes, he's going to answer. He's going to use your life. For the kingdom. For the prophet of the kingdom. He said, oh, praise God, good. He said, what do do you want me to do? He said, I want you to live a mediocre life. Make a series of poor judgments. And prove to people that they should trust God and not man. And the guy sits there and he goes, well, I was kind of hoping I could be like a Paul or a Moses. He says, we already got a Paul and a Moses. We need a guy like you. Every one of us get to be a witness and a part of the kingdom by the very way you believe. Every one of you, even Moses was used as an example because of the way he believed. And what you believe and who you believe in are the most important parts, the most important lessons that you will offer to the world in terms of your testimony and faith. You've heard me make the statement before, people only do what they believe. And that's true. They'll only do what they believe. And if they make mistakes, and if they don't obey the Lord, it's because that's what they believe. Or don't believe, in this case. If you keep the commandments, you are proving what you believe in. You're proving that I believe He really is the Lord. If you don't, You're proving by your testimony you don't believe he really is the Lord. And it's what you believe in that will determine the course you're going in this particular case. Moses presents to us one of the most exciting examples of what it takes to get into the promised land. And it has to do with what did he do with the strength of the living waters. Now, why is it speaking as opposed to striking the rod, is so important. Moses had an opportunity to teach the children of Israel the following. You see, the first time they got in the waters, it was Moses. It was his the rod. It was the rod. How do we get water in the wilderness? We're one of the sons of Israel. We're out there. We're, how do we get water? How do we get the living waters? How do we get life? From God. We need life. We're in the wilderness. We've got to have this water. How do we get it? Well, the obvious solution is we've got to get a guy named Moses, and we've got to get his staff. We've got to get his rod. And then he walks up to the rock, and we get water. Remember? That's how we get it, right? The Lord said, no, that's not how you get the water. And he wanted Moses to prove to you how to get it. He said, Moses, take your rod, take Aaron, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock. Because if you speak to the rock, every one of the sons of Israel will learn, if I need the living waters, all I have to do is speak to the rock. Boy, talk about an important lesson. That's the lesson you and I are supposed to be learning from the new covenant. You and I are supposed to understand, if you need the living waters, you believe. You walk up to the rock. You don't need Moses. You don't need Moses' staff. Walk up to the rock. Speak to the rock. You will get the living waters. You will get them. It is a gift that comes to every person in the assembly. Moses had an opportunity to teach it, and he missed it. He blew it. So now you can understand why it should cost him his ticket to the promised land. Do you realize the impact, the devastating impact it had on the nation of Israel and those that followed afterwards? They didn't learn a very important lesson. They missed the opportunity. And it took some time. Later, so that when the Messiah came, that's what he was teaching. Speak to the rock. What does First Corinthians 10 tell us about the Messiah and about the rock? It says the rock was the Messiah. The rock was the Messiah. Speak to the Messiah and you'll receive the living waters. Believe and you'll receive life, the life you need. That's what Torah is teaching. It's teaching us about the Messiah. How to speak to it and receive that life, let me move on to our next one. This is the one that I find the most fascinating. We know that um, when the Messiah came that uh, he had a series of statements that he made to the religious leaders that were tied back to actual statements that Moses had made in the Torah, and he was relating ...to what Moses had said the way they would understand it about God. For example, he made statements like this. Before Abraham was, I am. And boy, you talk about a controversial statement being made by Yeshua... ...to the sages, to the religious leaders in that day... ...because all of us in Torah, we know that the name I am... ...I am that I am, that came as a result of the teaching of Moses. That came as a result of the burning bush... Moses is after Abraham, generations after Abraham. And that was the answer that God gave to Moses when Moses said, Whom shall I say to the sons of Israel has sent me? And God answered, You will say to the sons of Israel, I am that I am. I am has sent you. Now, we do a little interesting thing in the Hebrew with that in a. And actually, that's where we get this expression. We sang it tonight in the song. Who was, who is, and who will be, or who is to come. And it's a play of the letters and the words, I am. And what we understand from the word I am, when God gave that title, I'm the eternal one. I have always been, I am now, and I will always be. I'm the eternal one. And so they understood that to mean the eternal one has sent sent Moses to us that's a an incredible title for God you know that he's given to us for us to relate in that way. so having said that, then it's recorded for us in the Torah that you uh, you will say to them that the I am the Lord of your fathers, uh the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and in the actual text. That's where we see the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Now some try to pronounce it uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, King James tries to say Jehovah. In other words, they try to, the King James tries to bring out the deeper meaning of the word by saying it's not Adonai, it's not Elohim, it's not Lord, it's not God, it's, it's this other special name. Now we Hebrews, we're very careful when we do that. When we, when we do that. In fact, uh, Orthodox, when they would read there, they don't even try to say that. What they say is, Hashim uh, Hashem. And Hashem is the name. So when we would read that text, we either substitute Adonai, or we substitute Hashem. Have you ever, how many of you heard the Hebrew expression, Baruch Hashem? Blessed be the name. It also means, praise the Lord. In other words, if I wanted to say, praise the Lord, in the Hebrew I'd say, Baruch Hashem. Praise the Lord. Because I'm, and instead of saying the name, the Hebrew name for Lord for His name, I, I substitute the name. And we have some brethren, uh, today, they're in what we call the sacred name movement. There's some who say, well this little mystery about the name of God, you know, w- we're really clued in. We really know, and we know the proper pronunciation, and as a result of saying the proper pronunciation, we're smarter than you. Actually they don't quite say it that way. They say, we get the blessing and you don't. Nonsense. Nonsense. They also, some go so far as to say, if you don't say it the way we say it, Yahweh, uh, you're not saved. I'm not making this up. I mean, there are people who do this. We used to have back some time ago, if you, if you don't, if you believe in Jesus and you don't get baptized, you're not saved. If you don't believe in Jesus and speak in tongues, you're not saved. We've been having people for years going around saying it's Jesus, it's Yeshua and something else. That's how you get get saved. Nonsense. Either he's the Savior or he's not. And I believe he is the Savior and he did not need me pronouncing Hebrew to get it. Okay. But it's given for us in the scripture. And what uh, Moses was specifically in that experience with uh, God there at the burning bush. What the Lord was really trying to get Moses to understand was the work that he was going to do, going back to the children of Israel and bringing them out of Egypt. And if you remember, 40 years before, Moses, the scripture records for us in Acts 7, supposed, I love that word, supposed that God was going to use him to deliver the children of Israel and he slew an Egyptian man. And he thought maybe the deliver he thought he thought God had put a, a destiny on his life to use him. And he went to the Egyptian man and he slew an Egyptian man who was harming a Hebrew. And he thought that was going to be the way that God was going to be delivering the children of Israel. Well, as you know, that wasn't the way. And he ended up running away like a coward. And he ended up running off to Midian, where he spent another 40 years tending sheep. And so when Moses is having this burning bush experience and he's talking to God and God says to him, Moses, I'm going to send you the children of Israel so that you will lead them out and you will bring them to this mountain and so forth. You remember Moses being very timid about this whole bit. He's already had round one on this and it didn't work out. And so he's like, well, you know, if a sword didn't do it, what what's going to do it this time? And he's like remembering he's a lot older now. He's not the young guy he was back then. And how in the world am I going to do that? You know, who am I, Lord, that I should go to Pharaoh and tell them to let the children of Israel go? Who, who am I? And so the Lord says, well, I've got something for you that's going to help you. And he reaches over and he says, he get, and he says, what do you have in your hand, Moses? And he says, it's a staff, it's a shepherd. That's what you will lead them out with. That's what I'm going to give to you. And he said, not with a sword from Egypt. But with a shepherd's staff, you will lead the children of Israel out. And really, it's a great message to us about the Messiah. It's the great shepherd who will lead us out of the slavery of sin and death. That's the one that will lead us out and give us salvation and deliverance. And in fact, what was really being stressed was not your hand, Moses, but my hand. By the hand of God, I will bring them out. And in the name, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, there's Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. You'll notice there's two Hays there. That letter is like in the shape of a slightly open door. You see the doorway? The top and the side and the slightly open door. And that letter means what comes forth. Something's going to come forth. We have two of those letters. And Moses understood that what was getting ready to come forth was salvation and deliverance. That God was a savior and God was a deliverer. And it would be in this letter right here, Yod is just like that. It means hand. It's in the shape like a hand. And so salvation and deliverance is going to come by the hand of God. So there's a lot of meaning in that name that was given to him as he proceeded to go on back and lead the children of Israel um, out of out of them, and the emphasis is on it's not on a sword but on a staff. It would be this staff that he was given. Do you remember that uh, the Messiah makes reference to the staff of Moses that when you see the Son of Man lifted up like Moses' staff in the wilderness, he said, "Then you'll see I am and the, in the in John. When he says that, we in our English Bibles, you'll notice that the word he is there. You will see that I am he. And the word he in most of your Bibles is in italics. Whenever you see in your Bible that little italics he, it means that the publishers, the people who've done the translation, they've inserted that word, but that word isn't in there in the original text. They're trying to insert that because they don't think it makes any sense. And they're trying to make sense of it to you in our modern English. So it will say, and you will see I am he. Only take that word back out of the gear. You will see I am. You will see the I am God that was talking to Moses. So he was really saying something incredible there. He was telling them that the God that spoke to Moses when he was talking to the sages, to the Jewish religious leaders in his day, Yeshua was saying, I'm the God that was talking to Moses. I'm the God that was in the burning bush. I talked to Moses. And one of the things that we do that you find in Exodus chapter 6, when Moses is getting ready to lead the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt, there's a point there where the Lord says to Moses, he says, and when I appeared to Abraham, Abraham only knew me as El Shaddai, almighty God. But he did not know me by this name, by this name, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. And what Moses was learning was, I'm now manifested more to you than even Abraham understood. And Abraham is the one who taught us a lot. Now, when the Messiah came along, not only did he make mention of him, and he said, I am, I'm the God that was in the burning bush talking to him. But he went further and he said, before Abraham was, I am. We didn't hear about the I am God until Moses after. But here's the Messiah saying, I was there as the I am God before Abraham, even before he knew about it. As a result, those that were listening to him, they knew without a shadow of a doubt that guy's saying he's God, and it says that they went to stone him. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy right there, and he walked away. But he made a rather interesting statement. He said, when I'm lifted up on the cross, when I'm lifted up like Moses' staff, you will see this God. You will see something as significant as when Moses saw the burning bush. There's going to be something present that will be as significant as Moses saw at the burning bush. What was it? It's the sign they put above the cross. A sign written by a Gentile, by Pilate. And when they crucified the Messiah, they put a sign up there, and it was written in three languages. In Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. And the sign read, Yeshua of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Here it is. It says that when those Jews, those religious Jews, saw that sign, they went ballistic. They went nuts. In fact, they went back to Pilate and they insisted, change that sign. Change anything, but change that sign. You remember that? Remember in the text it says they got real upset about that sign? And Pilate resisted them. He says, I've written what I've written. Now, some have come and they said, well... What the Romans were doing there was they wanted to shame Israel. They wanted to shame the Jews. So what they did was they were crucifying uh, Yeshua and they were calling him king of the Jews. They, they were trying to bring discredit upon the Jews. That's not it at all. How do we know that? Because that's the very charge that the Jewish religious leaders brought him to Caesar, to Pilate, to be killed. Remember, they came first to Pilate and they said, well, he, he makes himself to be God. And Pilate said, hey, none of my affair. That's about a religious stuff. And besides, we in Rome, we got lots of gods. I mean, you know, you're coming and tell me you got found another one. <laughs> I mean, we got all kinds of gods. You know, so what's the crime? There's, that's not a crime to us. So they went back and the Jews came back this time and they said, well, he makes himself to be king. And we know there's no king but Caesar. Oh, whoa, wait a minute. In Roman law, that, 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 that does mean something. Because everybody in Rome, we gotta call Caesar king. We got lots of gods, but you got to call Caesar king. And so you're saying to me that he's sowing sedition. He is saying he's a king. Is that right? And remember he went to him and he said, are you a king? And Yeshua answered him and he said, not of this world. Not of this world. Oh. So when they crucified him, they put the charge up. I mean, why is he being crucified? That's the the sign. You put above there, when you execute the prisoner, you put, what's the charge? He's a thief? You know, he did this. Well, here he is. Here's Yeshua of Nazareth. And what's the charge? The king of the Jews. Only we know there's only one king, and that's Caesar. But interestingly enough, when they put it up there and they wrote that, you know, I don't know if you know this, but in Hebrew, we don't have a lot of punctuation. We just have letters. You see that comma right there? We don't have commas in Hebrew. So if you're going to set up these two expressions here and make a title, in fact, you find it in the Hebrew, a lot of Hebrew portions, when they start out, it starts out with the word and. Va is the word and. Vayera. Vayelech. These are all Torah portions. First word in these portions is the word and. And he lived. And he went. And and it's instead of a comma or starting a new paragraph to break that up to be that punctuation we use the word and this conjunction and but we and we put it in places of commas. So the way this would have been written in Hebrew, it would be Yeshua Ha Nazareth Ve Melech Ha Yeshua of Nazareth and King of the Jews. Four Hebrew letters. Four Hebrew words. And now we get to the other interesting thing that we Torah teachers know about, and that is a subject we call the acrostics. You see, we believe that God is so smart and so intelligent, and one of the things that he can write is that we look for like the first letter in a word, and, and if we have a whole expression, we look for the first letter in the word, and that makes a whole nother word. And it's part of the secret meaning into the text. Because we know that God is so smart, he can write multiple messages right into the letters, right into the words. And I've been talking to you about deeper meaning of the actual individual letters. And so what you have in Yeshua ha HaNatseret, ha HaYehodim, is, go back to the slide that we have, the four letters, those letters, yod Hey, vav Hey. Yod from Yeshua. Ha from Ha Nazareth, There from the Melech. Ha Yehudim. Yod, hey, Bob, hey. There's the unspeakable name of God right at the cross. And when those Hebrews saw it, that's the name that came out at the burning bush with Moses. And just like what he'd said, when you see the son of man lifted up, you will see I am the I am God. Now, let me show you Yeshua's name that adds to this. This is Yeshua's Hebrew name, Yod-Shin-Vav-Ein. Some of those letters we've already talked about. Yeshua means salvation. It comes from the fact that when Gabriel came to Mary, you shall call him Yeshua, for he will save his people. You will call him salvation, for he will save his people. Very simple Hebrew name means salvation. Yeshua. Well, it goes down to the deeper meaning of the letters. Yod. Remember that? Hand. Shin. I'll cover that for you in just a moment. There's another vav. Okay? And ain. And the ain is I. To see. You're going to see the hand of something. So let's talk about the letter shin first. How many of you have seen a mezuzah there at the doorpost? When you walk in to an observant home or where observant uh, Jews are at, you'll see this little mezuzah fixed to the doorpost, and they make them little decorative things. And one of the things you'll see, if you really kind of pay attention, is you'll see that letter right there. It looks like a little W. And what they're designating on the outside of the mezuzah is the Hebrew word that it begins with, which is the next slide, which is Shaddai, Shaddai, Almighty God, Almighty And the reason why that we put that letter on the outside of the mezuzah is it has to do with the meaning of Almighty God. Because this letter means the destroyer of the door. Now, in ancient times, a bold commander, a commander of the host, one who is a forceful, powerful force, it would be demonstrated by when you come up to a city, or to a building, or a structure, how quickly, how powerful are you, how quickly can you get through the gate? How quickly can you get through the door of the city? And when you would lay siege, the idea was to knock the door down and run your forces in and and take control of the city. And so the, the measure of how powerful you were was when you bring your forces up, how quickly do you get through there? Well, God says... I'm the destroyer of the door. I'm the commander of the host. And the most powerful thing that they could understand was when God came up with his forces, he went through the gate. He went through the door like a hot knife through butter. Not only did he go through it quick, he destroyed the whole door. And we were told to affix mezuzahs to all the doors and the gates. And we put this letter up here to say, and this is basically the message we're doing, is that we're indicating to anyone who comes in that we honor, we honor Almighty God. And we use the first words, which also is this letter shin for the, for the word shema. And inside the mezuzah, there's a little parchment that says shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. The shema. Here is Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we take on the, when we roll up that little parchment, we write the letter Shaddai, and we put that, that shin letter first in the little roll up, and then we affix to the mezuzah, and we usually put that letter shin on the outside of the mezuzah. So when you walk up to the door, you render the honor to the, to the Lord by, you know, kissing it, rendering honor to it, recognizing it, and you're recognizing that when you go through this door and into this place, the people that are here honor God. They honor the God of Israel. They honor almighty God. And also it has another meaning. It's a signal to God. Hey, God, you're welcome in here. You don't have to tear the whole door down to come through here. We're not going to resist you. You're welcome. And so we're giving the signal. When you come, you don't have to tear the door down. Now, let's go back to Yeshua's name. There it is. You will see the hand of almighty God. But then we have this letter, Bob. By the way, that's back there in Yod Hey, Bob Hey, too. And I didn't mention it to you before. The reason is because it didn't really get understood to us until we saw this name, because it's got one of those Bobs there also. Because that's the letter Bob that means and it's in the shape of an ancient nail, and what that means is you will see the hand, the nailed hand of Almighty God. Now go back to yod heh vav Salvation and deliverance comes by the nailed hand of God. It was always God's intent to provide this great salvation and deliverance at the work of the Messiah. What Moses was doing was just a foreshadowing to set the nation of Israel so that the nation of Israel could bring forth the Messiah, the Great Shepherd who would provide salvation and deliverance to all peoples, to all peoples. Now, brethren, these are what I call little samples. They're little mysteries, little treasures, that every Torah portion is full of them. Let me say it to you again. Every Torah portion is full of them. And in going in and studying the scripture, one of the things the sages say to us, and I was sharing this earlier, They say there are 70 separate, distinct teachings in every Torah portion. I'm now starting on round 16. I've barely scratched the surface. It gets better and better and better. Turn with me as a last verse to Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, the Messiah comes teaching in a whole series of parables, word pictures, to illustrate and teach to the people about the kingdom of God. And in the giving of these parables, he, uh, Matthew records for us that because he taught in parables, he was fulfilling a prophecy that the Messiah would come teaching in parables. He would come teaching these little word pictures. You know, the kingdom of heaven is like unto, you know, the casting of a net to catch fish and so forth. And there's a whole series of those. Here in Matthew 13, as a matter of fact, they just go bing, 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 ring, right, right in a row. And it comes to this point uh, where, he comes to verse 51, where the Messiah suddenly turns. He's been teaching to the people about these parables, but he turns to his disciples and he says this, verse 51. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. I mean, these word pictures are kind of understandable. They're very illustrative to it. They say, yes. So, verse 52, he said to them, therefore, whoa, wait a minute, every time, what do you know about the word therefore? You know, every time you see the word therefore, you're supposed to go back and see what's it there for, right? In other words, everything that's been taught up to this point is just to set the stage for what you're about to hear. In other words, him teaching all these parables and asking the disciples, do you understand what I've been teaching? All of that was to set the stage for this statement. Because he's really getting ready to say something very profound now. And he says, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. What in the world does that mean? I can remember when I first read this back many years ago. I read that and I went, and I knew what therefore meant. You know, I knew that teaching. I went, what? That's it? Every scribe who becomes a disciple of the kingdom becomes like the head of a house." who brings forth treasures of old and new. What? What is that? So let's go back and let's look at something here. What's a scribe? A guy who copies Torah. He's a Torah teacher. He's a guy that writes those letters. He makes the aim larger than the other one. He makes the Dalet larger than the other one. He's the guy who writes the inverted noons. He's the guy who writes that text. He says, if you can get one of those guys... If you can get one of those guys to become a disciple of the kingdom, figure out who the Messiah is, that guy is going to be like the head of the house. And he will go through the house and he will pick you out mysteries and treasures that will blow your socks off. He will bring treasures of old and new. He'll be packaging little gifts to you and if he's coming, he'll be saying, behold what is here. You want to see the wisdom of God? Wait till you see this. The Torah is full of them. It's like a treasure room. When you can get a Torah teacher to come find out who the Messiah is, he can go in the Torah and show you stuff. that is amazing because we believe the Torah is the portal to all the dimensions of God. And it's more than just here. We believe it has huge implications. And the Torah will be in the kingdom. You remember that verse that we said here in the liturgy? For the Torah shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The great messianic prophecy. Because when we get to the kingdom, you know who the great Torah teacher is? Yeshua, the Messiah. You haven't seen nothing yet that come out of the Torah until you see the Messiah teach Torah. Because he is the head of the house. And he will be bringing out treasures and mysteries. And his words will literally illuminate the inside of your soul and make it come alive all i've given you is just an inkling just a taste of what the torah has It confirms and enriches our faith and it's really about the messiah it's really about what's going on inside of your soul deep down in there about what's been happening to you i offer this to you as an encouragement get into the torah Forsake not my instruction. Listen to what the Torah has to say. It's about your faith. It's about what's going on inside your soul, in your mind, in your heart, about your faith. You'll find you and the Messiah in there. Now, let me go back to my statement I said to your, Wouldn't it be interesting if we found out that the Torah was the Lamb's Book of Life? Wouldn't you like to read the Lamb's Book of Life and find your name in there? your life in there. Lord, I'd ask that you'd use this just to warm them up, to give a hint to them to get into the Torah, to get into the cycle. And I ask that you do this for your honor and your glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua Hamashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio.